Hi, my name is Anita Johnson. Before we play our show, I wanted to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become a part of our group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. We can only do this work with your support. Go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation. Thank you so much. Now here's the show. Our system is in too many ways broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact. Welcome to Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamarani, and today we're bringing you a piece from our new partners at a podcast called Kerning Cultures. Can you talk a little bit about like when you first found out that the government was surveilling you? Well, it's we had a law firm in Detroit. The law firm, the, the building was broken into, and I got a, some calls that were black bag calls, and I was sure that it was FBI. There's been a lot of news coverage about the U.S. government's surveillance of Muslims and Arabs following 9-11. But there's actually a long history of this kind of spying that goes back to the 1960s with a program called Operation Boulder. Operation Boulder collected intelligence on over 150,000 Arabs and Arab Americans. It was huge. It also involved 13 separate federal agencies who also physically harassed and stalked the people they were spying on. Our neighbor called and he said, your house on fire. And initially, so just kids in a neighborhood, you know. And, and then rumors started among the community, oh, it must be because of your political activism. And that really scared, that's when I got scared. The story behind Operation Boulder gives us a lot to think about. A forgotten piece of history and how it set the groundwork for the kinds of mass surveillance that we see today now it's not just law enforcement who is out to police you, to monitor you, to gather intelligence on you. It's also your teachers, your librarian, your therapist, your social worker, right? Everyone now becomes a potential node in this larger national security apparatus. But this story is also about the activists, like Abdin Jabara, who fought back and took the U.S. government to court. This piece originally aired on the Kerning Cultures podcast, Kerning Cultures tells stories from across the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. That's Kerning with a K. Here's their host, Suzanne Gaber. There are hundreds of stories tied up in Operation Boulder. Stories involving deportations, long detentions, and heavy surveillance. But our story today is about this man, Abdin Jabara. I'm an attorney by profession, but I'm currently retired from that. Today, He's well known for his legal and social support of Arabs in the U.S. But growing up in a small town in the 40s and 50s, he didn't have much interest in his Arab roots. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you grew up in the States? Yes, I can, because I think about it quite a bit. It's, um, I had a very interesting and a very essentially happy childhood. His family had been in the U.S. for more than three decades at this point. And so, growing up in that small town in northern Michigan, he says he felt more American than anything else. It's a very bucolic area with lots of lakes and rivers. 
and hills and uh, my father was in the grocery business in this small town and it was a very integrated community. The town was a kind of a self-contained unit. It had uh, its own newspaper, it had uh, a bakery, it had, and people rarely went to any other places because uh, we didn't need it, we had it there. The small town life suited Abdeen. He went to a small elementary school in town, and when he wasn't there, he spent his time playing with his siblings and neighbors. My mother would never go to sleep until everybody was home at night. She'd fix us huge, these huge meals of Arabic food, and we'd all climb in the back of this open truck that had a canopy on the top, and head out to some lake or some park or something and have a picnic. We had such a loving family. All of this rather idyllic uh, situation changed very drastically when I was 10 years old as my father and I went to a neighboring city, actually, a small city, to get groceries for our store. And we, we were involved in an accident in which he was killed and I was quite badly injured. And it took me several months before I recovered from that injury, after which I began working in this store and I continued working in it. But during that time I was finishing school, I think partly because of uh, the loss of my father and, and not really having had an opportunity to fully grieve his passing, I became much more intensely involved in his very strong attachment to his ethnic background. Abdin started trying to learn everything he could about his father's Lebanese heritage and became more interested in issues facing the Arab community. And in high school, I got involved in forensics competitions. Which were kind of like speech and debate competitions. And I um, wrote a, an original essay uh, that I used in this competition about the Palestine problem. That was my first introduction to it. He also started learning Arabic, which he hadn't spoken a lot of growing up. After which I uh, thought I should go to the Middle East and maybe I could improve my uh, spoken Arabic. And I went to Egypt. He spent six months in Egypt and then traveled to Lebanon, first to Beirut, then to his parents' villages in the Bekaa Valley. And met relatives there, including the uncle after who I was named, who was 107 years old when I saw him. And it was quite an experience. And I traveled from there to Damascus and Aleppo, where I caught the train, the Orient Express. The Orient Express took him as far as London. And from there, he traveled back to the US and finished up at law school. But when that was done, he went straight back to live and work in Beirut, where he got a job at the Palestine Information Office. This was in the 1960s, so Beirut's heyday, and he quickly surrounded himself with a group of Arab intellectuals, journalists, and activists. One of them was Anana Mary, a young journalist just starting her career. I was living in Beirut, Lebanon, and working with the Palestine Research Center and have a side job as a freelance journalist. One of her editors at the time gave her an assignment to interview Abdin for an article. And he sounded interesting, so I want to do interview with him. And he asked me out to dinner, and then another dinner. And then a week later, we decided I was going to go to France. 
and we decided we meet there. And then one thing led to the other. I ended up coming to the States to visit him and we ended up marrying. Came here in July and we got married in November. Very fast. But in the mid-60s, as Abdeen's work in Beirut started to dry up, he decided it was time to move back to the U.S. and start his own law practice. Shortly after I opened it, the war in the Middle East, the 1967 war, happened. Israeli forces drive spearheads across the Sinai Peninsula, west to the Suez Canal, south to the entrance of the Gulf of Aqaba, breaking the blockade, capturing the west bank of the Jordan River, and occupying the old city of Jerusalem. They were these All these things came kind of crashing down, and I was just, uh, totally in a state of shock uh, because I had just been there. I had just lived in Lebanon and had traveled in Syria and in Palestine. And that war was a uh, huge psychological blow. And it kind of reminded me of the uh, way that I experienced my father's death, that same kind of sense of loss. At this point, Abdin wasn't sure what exactly he could do to help. So he began speaking with other people in the Arab-American community in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they all said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And uh, someone suggested, well, we, we need to create an organization that will help get out accurate information about the Arabs and about the Palestinians because the American people don't know. The group that came together in those days eventually became the Association of Arab-American University Graduates. It was one of the first national Arab-American groups, and they began hosting annual conferences, bringing scholars like Edward Said to talk about imperialism in the Middle East. But the main focus was on this new nascent resistance to Israel that was embodied in the Palestine Liberation Organization. That was ultimately what got me in trouble with the U.S. intelligence agency. Around this time, the U.S. government had started surveilling Abdin. They were secretly recording the speeches he gave at those annual conferences, tracking his social activities, and tapping his phone. But it wasn't just him. This was part of a much broader intelligence program called COINTELPRO. Under it, the FBI were already monitoring and harassing black activists and leftist groups. Socialism is the people. If you're afraid of socialism, you're afraid of yourself. Groups like the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, and the American Indian Movement. We know they have our pictures, we know they're looking for us, we know they want us. They saw them as pro-communist, anti-American. The Communist Party of America is doing everything in its power to steal the minds and the souls and the hearts of our young people. This was the 1950s and 60s, the darkest days of the Vietnam War. The Cold War loomed in the background of almost every American psyche. The civil rights movement was taking off, and the U.S. government was in a state of panic. Tragically, our nation's leadership, while striving for peace, has adopted a course that makes real peace unlikely. And they reacted by coming down hard on any dissenting group who they felt were a threat. Their methods, though, were often illegal assassination, spinning false narratives, arbitrary detainment. In 1969, they helped orchestrate the murder of the Black Panther Party's chairman, Fred Hampton. So in this context, in the early 1970s, the FBI officially added, quote, potential Arab saboteurs to the list of groups that they saw as a threat. And then... This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich, 
where early this morning armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. The Black September attacks happened at the 1972 Munich Olympics. The gunmen shot dead two Israelis and are now holding 20 athletes and six officials as hostages. The guerrillas are demanding the release of 250... And this is where Operation Boulder starts. After the Black September attacks, the Nixon administration ordered the creation of the program. In the words of one of its directors, it was set up to, quote, check records and help establish the identity and immigration status of any Arab or other suspicious person. Basically, it was trying to drive a wedge between less politically engaged Arab Americans and those with what the FBI saw as more radical pro-Palestine politics. Unlike some of the earlier intelligence gathering after the 1967 war, for example, Operation Boulder wasn't secretive. The U.S. government put out press releases in the newspapers, which were written up in places like the New York Times and Newsweek. Headlines read things like, U.S. checks Arabs to block terror, or U.S. begins screening Arab residents and travelers for terrorists. But for a lot of Arab Americans living through this period, Operation Boulder meant early morning home visits from the FBI, being questioned and interrogated on your college campus, having your private phone calls tapped, threats of deportations, visa denials, or any combination of the above. Every Arabic surname person, regardless of their nationality, had to be cleared by the intelligence service in the United States before they could get a visa to come to the United States. Every single one of them. Can you talk a little bit about like when you first found out that the government was surveilling you? Well, it's, it's, we had a law firm in Detroit. We, we um, bought a house up outside of the downtown area. The law firm, the, the building was broken into, and I got some calls that were black bag calls, and I was sure that it was FBI. Black bag call is a kind of spy uh, slang to describe tactics like breaking and entering or electronic so, surveillance. And then the, the other thing that happened, and I think I told you this over the phone, was one of my partners went to the bank and uh, somebody that was working there called him over and showed him a list of names on this paper uh, that were two or three Palestinian organizations and three or four individuals, and my name was on it. When he asked around, nobody could tell Abdin why his name had shown up on that list. But he knew that this was a move right out of the FBI's playbook, to keep tabs on the bank accounts of the people they were spying on. So as a lawyer, his first instinct was to take legal action to figure out what was going on. We knew we weren't violating any laws. We knew that we were doing what America says that we're entitled to do, which is to engage in a political activity to uh, petition for change. He was very, very angry that the FBI would have the audacity to check his bank account, and uh, he was determined to sue them. This is Anna Mary again. She was married to Abdin at the time. So when he come home and he say, oh, honey, you don't know what, what happened today. I'm going to sue them. I'm going to do this to them, and they can't. And Like, he's, uh, he's like that kind of a person. So Abdin called the American Civil Liberties Union, better known as ACLU, asking for help. And his case was assigned to a counterterrorism lawyer in Washington, D.C. 
John Shattuck. Um, I'm an attorney, and uh, for 13 years I was an attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union in the 1970s and early 1980s, uh, during which time I represented uh, Abdeen Jabara. With John Shattuck and the ACLU, Abdeen put a case together to find out the scope and depth of this surveillance. Uh, so we pieced together some information, and in 1973, uh, we filed a lawsuit against uh, the FBI, and then we added to that uh, the NSA uh, and other agencies uh, who were involved in this surveillance. Eventually, that lawsuit led to the discovery of much of the information that we know about Operation Boulder today. I think within the first four or five months, I have a figure here, I think something like uh, thirteen or 14,000 a people had been investigated. And then within the next uh, year or so, sort of by the middle of 1974 or 75, probably over 100,000 people, including Arab Americans, not just visitors to the United States, but American citizens who were living here and fully <laughs> fully authorized to be here and, and fully engaged in, in life of being an American, uh, were captured by this surveillance. So what does that tell you? What does that tell you about this vaunted democracy of ours that uh, wants to say to the world that how uh, it stands for uh, individual rights? The fact of the matter is, is that when they feel threatened in any way, those rights go down the tube. In an affidavit, Abdeen said neighbors even started to notice people snooping around his house. Once, after his phone stopped working, a telephone repairman came out to inspect the lines near his house and noticed that they had actually been cut. Abdeen said a neighbor later told him that they'd seen men in suits in the back of his house right around the time that the phone lines went out. It's creepy. One of the other things that they found in the case is that some of the information had come directly from groups whose goals countered Abdeen's. One of the uh, major sources of information about Jabara, which led to the targeting in, of his case in the Operation Boulder, was a set of Zionist sources, as the judge says. I mean, I'll very specifically quote from his opinion. We have it right here. He says, included in the information regarding Jabara uh, throughout is data which the FBI has received from Zionist sources. One of those sources was the Jewish Defense League. Essentially what that means is, this private organization was gathering information about other American citizens and sharing it with US intelligence and police departments. And uh, they had hired private investigators who went out and gathered information of speaking events, etc., and also got um, involved with various police departments around the United States to help gather information. How did that feel, learning that? Well, it, it was just kind of, uh, I'll tell you very honestly, I mean, you know, of course it's, it's, it's both intimidating and a little bit kind of empowering in the sense that they think that you're doing something that really is making uh, impact, <laughs> you know? But it was taking a toll on his family. It was one thing to know that their phones were being tapped, but then a lot of weird stuff started happening to them. They started to notice people following them. And then 
somebody, and they don't know who, broke into their home. One thing was very unsettling to me is like a year and a half after we were married, somebody broke into our house and it looked like a robbery. And I told Dabdin, I don't want to stay home. I'm very, very nervous. Anand began avoiding the house entirely. She was studying English at a nearby university and would wait for Abdin at the college library until he was done with his own classes so they could head back together and she wouldn't be alone. I said, drop me at the library and when you're ready to go home, I'm, I'm not staying home by myself. Up until now, this all sounds like vignettes from a bad spy movie. The men in suits, the tap telephone calls. But then, in March 1976... Our neighbor called and he said, your house on fire. And initially, so just kids in the neighborhood, you know. And, and then rumors started among the community, oh, it must be because of her political activism. And that really scared. That's when I got scared. They never got to the bottom of what caused the fire. There's no evidence that it was the FBI or any other intelligence agencies who were spying on them at the time. But still, their house burnt down. Over the next few months, though, they rebuilt it. And then they sold it as fast as they could. And it took me a while to feel comfortable in our new house. But I never said to him, don't do this anymore, ever, ever. I was very proud of him. But I didn't want to die in a fire (laughs) either. (laughs) Which is very fair. In 1979, after six years of pretrial evidence gathering, there was a decision by the trial court judge that Abdeen's First Amendment rights had been violated and the FBI had to present greater evidence of how and why he was surveilled. Abdeen had won, sort of. And then that went to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals um, reversed the trial judge's decision and said two things, really. Uh, first, that um, it, it affirmed that this was indeed a an intelligence investigation and that there was no... Uh, evidence of criminal conduct and that this was really just intelligence gathering. Uh, but it, it, it basically um, said that an intelligence investigation of this kind was uh, probably constitutional. Despite the U-turn, the appeals court decision had a big impact on Abdeen's case and Operation Boulder. It also had an impact on how this kind of intelligence gathering would happen in the future. The order still held that the FBI should stop investigating Abdeen and that the records that they gathered on him should be destroyed. But it also established the idea that when governments are spying on people, they can't just cast a wide net and see what turns up. Intelligence gathering had to be more focused. And second, that in general, some kind of a warrant procedure or a a court order should be necessary in order to make this kind of surveillance constitutional. And that, in fact, is what led to what's known as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which was a federal statute uh, enacted in the late 1970s. And, you know, today remains kind of the the standard against which uh, these kinds of surveillance activities are judged. We can't say for sure how much Abdeen's case influenced this. But in 1975, while the case was still ongoing, the entire Operation Boulder program was officially shut down. They said because it involved too much paperwork. And although the program had ended, this kind of surveillance against Arabs and Arab American communities did not stop. Well, let me tell you, it lessened 
All right, I mean, I, you know, it never really stops, but it lessens. In the years after Operation Boulder, there were lots more incidents of government surveillance of Arab and Arab-American communities. They just went under different code names. In the 1990s, there was Operation Vulgar Betrayal, in which U.S. agencies used similar tactics, intimidation, home visits, and electronic surveillance to harass the Arab and Muslim community in Chicago. And then, of course, after 9-11, everything changed. Well, I think the Operation Boulder was, in fact, something of a blueprint for what was put in place after 9-11. So for me, Operation Boulder is one point in a much larger story that you know, starts well before Operation Boulder and continues well after um, Operation Boulder began. This is Associate Professor Nicole Nguyen, who studies the relationship between national security, war, and education at the University of Illinois, Chicago. The 1970s, I think, is important in Operation Boulder in particular because it's sort of the consolidation of anti-immigrant, um, anti-activist, anti-Arab and anti-Muslim policies and sentiment. But I think there is a lot of key features around Operation Boulder, um, both in terms of trying to regulate immigration um, and construct this sort of perceived external threat, Arab threat to the United States, and the criminalizing practices happening within the United States. And, and sort of every iteration since Operation Boulder the kind of overt racial and religious profiling that happened after 9-11 was criticized by Arab and Muslim communities, as well as groups like the ACLU. Because of that, some of the fundamental aspects of this type of surveillance began to change. For instance, instead of having agents on the ground following people, listening in on phone conversations like they did with Abdeen in the 1970s, these days, informants would pose as community leaders, imams, for example, and report back to the FBI. Now, it's not just law enforcement who is out to police you, to monitor you, to gather intelligence on you. It's also your teachers, your librarian, your therapist, your social worker, right? Everyone now becomes a potential node in this larger national security apparatus where, you know, people will report, I don't want to go to my therapist because I'm afraid they're going to report me to law enforcement, right? I'm afraid of what's going to happen to those notes. I'm afraid to check out books from the library. I'm afraid to say anything political in the classroom, right? So you're st you start to erode these spaces that are supposed to give care to communities um, as they become these sites of surveillance. But it's undeniable that some of the fundamental patterns that began with Operation Boulder are still around. Yeah, there, I guess there are a few really clear th through lines. Um, you know, the first is that Arab and Muslim immigrants in particular, but Arab American and Muslim Americans as well, pose a national security threat to the United States that demands a sophisticated uh, response that includes surveillance, that includes criminalization, that includes policing. I think a second through line would be that Arab and Muslim political organizing, whether domestic um, in Palestine and elsewhere is also a threat to the United States. Um, and that needs to be monitored, surveyed, and repressed ultimately. And so, you know, part of what Operation Boulder was about was about sowing discord within Arab and Muslim communities. It was about fracturing communities. And while U.S. government surveillance of Arab and Muslim Americans continues, if Abdin hadn't sued the U.S. government, we might never have known the extent of its discrimination against his community. So in a sense, I think he he really, he's a hero of civil liberties in some ways. And I salute him for that. And I was very happy to represent him in that. 
Abdin has continued to work against anti-Arab and Muslim bias by the U.S. government. Him and Anand ended up getting a divorce and have both since remarried, but they're still very close. He lives in New York City now and continues to mentor young Arab activists. One thing he said that stuck with us is that when he looks back on his work, he often wonders, what would my father think? Uh, you know, and I think back at him, and, and I just wonder what he would say about me today. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure because there's... Uh, uh, he'd think maybe I was maybe getting in too much trouble <laughs> and that I shouldn't. Uh, but I don't know. I really don't know. And that does it for today's show. Again, this story originally aired on Kerning Culture's podcast. Kerning Cultures tells stories from across the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. That's Kerning with a K. And you're listening to Making Contact. To get more information, including a full list of credits, visit radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, Sabine Blazin, Jessica Partnow, and I'm Salima Hamarani. I want to give a special goodbye to our producer, Monica Lopez, who started a new phase in her production career. We wish you luck, Monica. And thank you for listening to Making Contact.